Welcome back to My Life with David Cassidy. I'm Carol Kaplan, and this is part two of my interview with Meryl Tans. I'm going to start this episode with a trigger warning. Now, if you don't want to hear about violence, substance abuse, infidelity, I ask you to just skip this episode. Further, if you're a fan who prefers to remember David Cassidy as his character, Keith Partridge, on The Partridge Family, you may also want to skip this episode. Now, this is not a DC trash-talking episode. Rather, it's an examination of the real life of a highly talented man who entertained us for nearly 50 years, a man who was hounded endlessly by fans and struggled with numerous demons that haunted him his entire life. Now, much on that has been publicly alluded to elsewhere, but this interview marks the first time that someone who actually lived with David was married to him, speaks about it openly. Did it shock me when I first heard these things? Absolutely. I struggled for days trying to reconcile these revelations with the David that I thought I knew. But one thing I've learned, fame is really fickle. It showered David with money and adoration and then left him lonely and isolated. He couldn't even go out in public like the rest of us to form real relationships. Often, women were simply brought to him, and there was never a shortage. Here's the second part of my interview with Meryl Tans, who picks up the story at her farm in California. There were a lot of women around, correct? Yes, there always were. He told me it came with the territory, and we had we had a, a break-in at the house in Brentwood, and we had people sleeping in the hedges outside the farm. The gate would open, and a horse van would come in, and three or four fans would run in behind the horse van, and sleep on the farm overnight. And finally, we had to get the Santa Barbara sheriffs and give them the gate code. And twice a night, the highway patrol and the sheriffs would hit the code and would put their searchlights on. And the horses actually got used to it. They knew the lights would come on and it wasn't dangerous. And the sheriffs would go very slowly between the paddocks with the, sh- with the cop cars and looking for people. And often they would stop and we would hear them stop and the lights would go off and we would hear voices and we would go outside. And sure enough, there were two kids in handcuffs. And, you know, David felt really badly about this, but this was our home. They could have been run over by a horse. Uh, Something could have happened. And it continued for years and years after he and I were no longer living together. And um, I once brought someone into the house and I said, well, then you look for him yourself. 
And if you can find him, please bring him to me. (laughs) (laughs) They never harmed us, ever. I will say this. David has wonderful fans. He has fans that um, will love him till the day they die. They will play his music till the day they die. They will continue to talk to me, contact me, and I am comfortable enough now that I contact several of them. They know my birthday. They know things that I like. And uh, we, they are my friends. I mean, this and is unusual, Meryl. I don't know. I don't know if it's usual or not. But David died and he was never buried. His ashes were scattered at Saratoga. But there was never a place and there is not a place. There is no gravestone. There is no grave site. There is nowhere to go or anyone who will talk to them who knew him. And even though I was his second wife, and I was married to him a long, long time ago. You could say that I wasn't, I, I kept in touch with him very rarely. He, he would phone and leave a message or congratulate me on a win or if I sold a yearling to Sheikh Mohammed or someone for a lot of money, he was proud of that. Um, but we, we never stayed in touch But um, this is a home where he lived, and this is a home where I still lived, and I've never remarried. And uh, I I am as uh, amazed, I think, as some of the fans to find out we have a lot in common. We have children. We have grandchildren. We cry the same tears. Why, why do you think this has become this way? Because, you know, when most actors or entertainers die, people sort of move on. But in this case... It hasn't happened. Yes, and they're still trying to connect in some way with you and other members of his family. Why do you think there is this intensity for people to still connect well his fame stretched across the world and when he did a concert he he smiled in their faces and a lot of times he knew their names and he would have members see david had fan clubs where the heads of the fan clubs were like his sisters and they would call him you know once or twice a month we would get on the phone and we would say okay we're going to go to New York then we're going to go to London and give them our activities and yes we have taken some photographs we can put them in the mail and send them to you and out some like a 10 page book every 3 or 4 months would come a David Cassidy's fan club in the mail to you 
and you could catch up on every little thing that he he was doing. And uh, to this day, these women, I mean, there is a plaque on the wall of a theater in London where he did the play Time. I believe there is going to be a star in Las Vegas. There is a wonderful memorial for him at Saratoga Racetrack in New York State, a track that he loved, that he and I would go to every year we were together, and he continued to do so with his next wife, Sue. And um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Vanderbilt or Mrs. Whitney, um, I think it was Mrs. Whitney, gave him uh, the right, gave a bench uh, and and the fans paid for it. And uh, all of us put money in and he now has two benches uh, in a beautiful little courtyard on the Saratoga racetrack in his name. And he wasn't that successful in racing. But what he did was, when he came to the racetrack, everybody wanted to shake his hand. And whether you, you know, you rode the horse, you owned the horse, you groomed the horse, you were the, the person who fed the horse. There was no difference in his love for people who who worked around horses. And um, so, strangely enough, there are the fan clubs today, and I don't think we call them fan clubs now. I have thousands of friends all over the world who have emailed me privately and said to me, hi, you know, I didn't know about you or I didn't like you that much or can you tell me this about David or that about David? And and 99% of the time I answer them. And I've shared many, many moments with them. So what is it that you think that people misunderstand about David? What did you learn about him that the rest of us don't know? Well, I don't know that I really learned a lot of what other people don't know. I do know that David had all his life a very bad anxiety disorder. And while I don't excuse his drinking, I know that Part of his alcoholism was made worse by the fact he would get so afraid before he had to do something, he would knock a couple of drinks back. Did you realize that he had a problem with alcohol back then? I did too. I had a problem with alcohol too. And and I did I want to recognize that he did? Not really. We got up in the morning and took an aspirin and we were fine. But I couldn't do that today. I don't I don't drink at all and haven't for many years. And I realized with David that when he got upset, 
that I was in for a ride. And it was quite frightening. He would get very, very drunk. He, David, weighed 130 pounds and he could finish a bottle of tequila. And he had, you know, he would get ill. He would lie in bed and it was, he would get very angry at times. Was he abusive? He was abusive. And uh, what regard? I've told this before in public, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I was badly beaten by him at a, a political function, actually, in front of people. And he pulled my hair out and kicked me and hit me, kicked me in the back, and I was unconscious. And um, it was a very very difficult time. What year would that have been? It was May 6th, 1986. <laughs> and you remember the exact date? Yes, I do. It was, and I remember the time too. It was 20 after 8. It was at a big ranch here in Santianes Valley, and it was for a uh, a state's representative and a famous family, and I'd rather not mention the name if you don't mind. Sure. What was it that got him so angry, or does it matter? I think um, uh, what had occurred at that time, he had had that, uh, we had had a problem uh, with Samantha Fox, and, and um, Samantha Fox is uh, an entertainer or is an actress in Great Britain. England. Yes, yes. And I was not happy with the nude photographs that appear mm. in the papers the following day. It had uh, big repercussions for my daughter, Caroline. She was terribly teased at school and humiliated at school. Some promotional photographs. They were supposedly leaked and she was naked from the waist up, and he was naked from the waist up. And in actual fact, it really hurt the sales of the album because the ladies or the young women at that time who were buying the romance album didn't exactly want to see him standing with a, a pinup. They imagined themselves with him. So right, right. it wasn't, his management company was not pleased. But according to legend, the, the, the photographs were leaked. And I don't know to this day if that's true. In May of 1986, uh, he was looking for more work. And we needed or he needed to record another album because he had toured and he had played the Royal Albert Hall in 1985. And that was going just charmingly. However, his management company never called and never said, because he was supposed to do an album with George Michael. And uh, it just never seemed to happen. Nothing seemed to, you know, happen. And he was uh, basically quite depressed about it. He went over to England just before this incident and um, 
I guess there was nothing on tab for him to do. And he came back to the farm and he was extremely unhappy and he had started drinking during that day. Uh, the incident happened that night and then he spent the next six weeks, because uh, in those days, um, a woman very seldom called in a domestic violence call. Incident, uh, yeah. Incident. And because of the fact that it was a political fundraiser, I was not inviting the sheriffs to come there either. And the doctor came to the house. Everybody came to the house to stitch me up and and took me to Los Angeles to get x-rays and stuff like that. But I will say there is a, a silver lining to that story. Um, I worked uh, as a volunteer with the sheriff's department for years after that, where I myself became a victim's advocate and uh, went out and help other people with the same kind of problems. So, um, Meryl, there's a lot of people that think of David Cassidy as Keith Partridge, the, the character he played. It's very difficult for them to imagine him being violent. Can you explain that? Was this part of his personality? David uh, was capable, as we all are, of violence. This was uh, one incident that uh, went way beyond uh, anyone's imagination uh, that could even believe that this had occurred. And um, he could get really, really angry, but it did not it did not go into physical violence against another person. In fact, I don't know of any man he's ever hit. Well, he or, was a small guy. He was a small man, but he was he was a man in terms of the fact that he was very masculine. David uh, was uh, you know the head of the household. That's for sure. And uh, as a human being, he was a gentle and a loving and a funny and a charismatic and a delightful person to wake up next to. He absolutely loved animals. He loved cats. He loved dogs. We had bunches of them around here. And um, he loved being a father to my daughter, and she loved him very much and still does to this day. And so I would say, what was David Cassidy like? He was, he was 95% the person you think that he is. He, he, could, he was the most gentle soul I think I've ever met, and at the same time, um, he, he could um, t turn on a dime, and and uh, uh, suddenly he was somebody else. But that, so, but, but he was. I believe David was bipolar. Really? Yes, I do. Why do you say that? Because he had very high highs. 
long months of depression and he would slowly come out of it. And he would never believe that he could achieve things and one had to coax him and encourage him and make things happen and and show him the way. And then, you know, something good would happen and he his his spirits would lift. But he was never he went to see a psychiatrist. Uh, he was uh, quite willing to do that, to seek help. And um, who was David Cassidy? I'm going to say to you that David Cassidy wanted to be somebody else. He wanted to be accepted as a serious actor. He wanted to do Shakespeare. He wanted to be Sir Laurence Olivier. He, he could do Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat with his eyes closed, but he also wanted to be taken as a romantic lead in a drama. He wanted to sing in a heavy metal band, kind of wanted to be like Kurt Cobain. But so, he wanted to do certain things and the the world said no. You know, they they wanted him to fit into a category of what they saw. And so he would be offered tons of shows and things that would come here by when Federal Express would come by or, you know, I think it was new uh, DHL would come from England uh, offering him a part that he would just say, why do they think this is all I can do? Mm. So there were many things he turned down and many things where he he went and tried out and auditioned for that he didn't get. And I don't know much about um, the uh, starring role that he got in uh, Las Vegas where he took over for Michael Crawford, but he showed a very large audience every month for, I think, wasn't it almost two years? What a consummate a professional he was in singing and dancing. Yes. Yeah. At EFX. Yeah. Was the show. Yes, EFX. And he uh, was world class. He was world class. And I think that... You, you mentioned at the very beginning of our interview that David wasn't as lighthearted. You know, in, in many photographs that I've seen of him, he does have sort of a, a wistful, sad look. On his face. I mean, it, was that his natural state? David, uh, well, he's half German, half Irish. He uh, he was melancholy, and the truth about him, in a way, if you think of the song "Oh Danny Boy," yes, that's what he was like. He was always longing for something that just wasn't there. Do you maybe. think that that stems from the broken relationship with his father? I, I would say that that his father leaving him at four years of age 
and, uh, you know, marrying the Madonna of her day, Shirley Jones, uh, was uh, he needed his a male figure in his life very, very much. And in those days, people really didn't know the damage that they caused, you know. And when he went from the little place where he lived in New Jersey to the very fancy, posh home that Shirley and Jack shared, he never felt quite good enough. And he always said, my brothers, but they are my half-brothers. He had a very Irish personality, and he could be very melancholy, and then he could be over the top with joy. If he had a horse that won, he literally would, could dance on tables. I mean, he would pick me up and swing me around for days, <laughs> and we would, we would, we would just go and, and go home and put our arms around this horse's mother and tell her that her baby had won that day. And, you know, that's who he was. He was uh, very endearing and very, very kind. And I think he meant well his entire life. I really do. And I think his faults come from a disease, from alcoholism. I think he couldn't control his sorrow sometimes or his anger. And he made, you know, he... He tried to get back with me many, many times. And uh, I knew that the, the up and down of life with him, I couldn't handle it. What was the final straw? What ended the marriage? I think um, the... The, um, the unstoppable spending of money. His money or your money? My Just buying cars, buying horses, and, um, and, uh, the dr drinking and, and, uh, I finally, um, there was actually a photograph taken of him in England when he was looking for work and it was looking pretty good of him and a local person together at our favorite restaurant. Okay. And, and the Daily Mail called me and said they had the photograph and they were going to press, and they wanted to alert me so that I could tell Caroline so that we wouldn't have another Samantha Fox issue. Right. Because they had published that picture. And they were going to going to press with it. And they just and they said a bunch of other things to me. They asked me why a person like me, me married a, a womanizer like him. And I went, I didn't know. Like an idiot, you know. I didn't know he was a womanizer. 
I didn't even know who the Partridge family was. It was so crazy. And and so um, they went to him and they told him that they had spoken with me. And he said, my wife would never speak to the press. She would never do that. And he said, well, she has, and she's divorcing you. And the next morning, uh, the story was in the Daily Mail. And that was sometime, I believe, in the early part of uh, 1987. And I do want to correct, because I said in the beginning that you married in 85, but you actually had married in 84. So We, we married in 84, we did. Yeah, and, and so the marriage ended in 88. Um, yes. So after you found out about him seeing another woman in London, um, he came back to the States. Yes. And what happened? Well, he denied it. And uh, I said, pictures don't lie. And she and I have talked about it on multiple occasions. And she said it was a coincidence. She was there to meet somebody else. And she bumped into David, whom she saw at the at the club where he exercised on a regular basis. And since that time, we have become friends. Did you believe that? I don't know if I believe it. I don't, I don't know that I do. But I, I you know, David is, is gone and uh, I can't change anything. I wish now frankly, that I wasn't so headstrong and I wasn't so stubborn and so proud, you know, uh, because uh, I think I missed a great life in some ways being with him. Uh, we, we knew lots of fabulous, famous people, exciting people. We did more in one week than most people do in a year. I got to meet the heads of state. I got to meet the heads of government. I, I had a wonderful afternoon with the governor, Mario Cuomo, senior, at Saratoga, where we, we had a lovely afternoon. And I thought, where would I, a little girl from South Africa, ever be sitting with the governor of New York at Saratoga? Yes. If it wasn't for David. So one thing that I'm very excited to talk about is the fact that you have some unheard recordings that have never released that are in your possession. And how did that come about? We uh, went to a recording studio and met with a producer and uh, I uh, financed the playing of the music and uh, I was in the studio most of the time too. It was terribly exciting, as was the recording of Romance, to be, to be with him when the actual creation of the music happens. And we so that's something that we're going to talk about in our next episode. Yeah. We're going to talk about the how you finance that album, Romance. But this was a weekend get-together 
at a recording studio in Nashville where he recorded three songs that, uh, that I'm yes. aware of. Yes, three songs. And uh, I, I kept them with me all these years and we never got to do anything with them. And uh, um, I would like to uh, play them on the show. And I really would like each fan to have their own uh, recording of these songs. They're very, very beautiful. And I don't quite know how to go about it, but we could make some kind of, of a disc where everyone could have one. Well, I think that's a wonderful idea, and I think it will be very warmly received by David's millions of fans around the world. I can tell uh, our audience that I, I did listen to one of the songs last night, and it was very emotional because they were recorded when David was at the top of his game, and his voice was clear and strong and full of emotion, and he played the piano, and they're just beautiful, and I can't wait to share some of this music with you um, in our next episode. So that's something that we're looking forward to. Um, we are going to continue our conversation with Meryl um, next time. And, and as I said before, the purpose um, of this series of podcasts is really for posterity to record for the historical record of who David Cassidy was and why he was and parts of his life that may not have been known to look back at his legacy and what he's left for all of us. So Meryl, I want to thank you so much for being so sharing and um, sort of coming out uh, after all these years to speak about your life with David. And um, I know that he meant so much to you. Well, thank you, Carol. It, it's been a pleasure, and I hope the fans and other people who don't know much about David's life enjoy uh, what we've talked about. That second episode that I referred to never happened. A day after that interview was recorded in June of 2019, Merrill said she wanted to re-record the interview. As a journalist, that's an absolute ethical no-no. But after some coaxing, I relented. Merrill wanted to re-record the interview in person and even bought a plane ticket to come out and see me. A couple days after that, I was stunned to learn that she had given the music to someone else. I immediately reached out to her to ask why, and I never heard from her again. I still have no explanation. But I'm going to honor Merrill's request to air at least one of the songs here, even though it's already been played elsewhere, as her gift to you. Both of us holding back so afraid